Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Now there are jokes, and then there is piss all over my shoes. These are two entirely different things. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, in our second segment, we're finally having Sean Nichols on the podcast to talk about Buddhism and fear of death. Would you call Sean a bucket list guest? <laughs> he made himself into a bucket list guest by playing hard to get, I think. Yeah. He, he played it really smart. He did. <laughs> You know, J- Josh Green is our true unicorn, I think, maybe. Uh, yeah. But, but Sean worked his way into into our hearts by treating us poorly. We're yes. like the lover with low self-esteem. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So future guests, if you want to be on, be coy with us. <laughs> yeah. So that's what's coming on in the second segment. It was also our first live recording. And it went kind of, I think it went pretty well. Way better than I than I anticipated, just from a technological perspective. I think we sound pretty damn good. I don't know if if we what we say is any good. But. No, substance wise, it was it was really bad. But <laughs> but yeah, it was fun. It was great. We met up in San Antonio. That doesn't happen too often. I know it's like the third time. Each like each time we see each other, we're just older. We're just it's like <laughs> I, I know you can actually. It's like seeing somebody's kid. You know, after a few years. <laughs> It's like, oh my God, you've grown, except now it's, ah, oh, jeez. God, I'm balder and older <laughs> and fucking wrinkled. Uh, but, but yes, yes, hopefully hopefully we could do a few more of those. Actually. Yeah, that would be fun. It's already. <laughs> no, I think, so. what percentage of the people there do you think had ever heard the podcast? Seven and a half, maybe. I think it was maybe 15%. Yeah. yeah. Okay. For the first segment, we are going to decide on our five finalists for our Patreon listener-selected episodes. And both you and I have come up with five choices that we would like to have as the finalists. And I guess we'll do some negotiating and we'll settle on five that we'd be happy with. So, what's your number one? Oh, as always, I don't rank mine. <laughs> yeah, mine. Nor- normally, I do because that's what yeah. we're supposed to do. But I didn't this time. Yes. Okay. So uh, here's one that popped out at me. I thought I thought uh, we've we've teased this, but never directly addressed it, and that's uh, the ethics of care. Oh, um, I, I have that too. 
Yeah, I thought you would. Um, uh, and so the ethics of care as a topic in general, the view, both the normative philosophical view and I think the descriptive psychological view. Yeah, so this was a suggestion from Amanda Kennedy. I just happened to have taught in my metaphilosophy seminar. So I would be very excited to do this. You know, part of our challenge, I think, is when we post these for our Patreon listeners to subscribe to it, I think we have to go out of our way to to describe yeah. a little bit what we mean. Well, um, because I do think that an episode on the ethics of care sort of has to build on a discussion of Kohlberg and justice and that whole sort of moral development that, sh- that Carol Gilligan was reacting to when she first proposed this stuff. I think it would be really, really interesting. Yeah, and I, and I think what it... I think it has two elements, the ethics of care. One, a critique of the dominant paradigm the dominant paradigm in ethics, utilitarianism versus deontology, and an interesting kind of diagnosis of why that's the dominant paradigm, again, tied to the fact that these are moralities that suit men in public and market life. But they're, but they're not aware of the genealogy of it, and right. and and they actually think this is the more the, the rational morality that should apply to all domains of life. So um, so there's a there's a really interesting critique of of these paradigms, and then there's a positive ethic that's being proposed in its place um, that involves care and caring relations, and that's a little. F- fuzzier exactly what it is that's being yeah. proposed but it would be really interesting to try to flesh it out okay all right so we each scratch one off our list so you go next here's another one that we have teased but not done i think this was even proposed in the last um segment but 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 the denial of death by ernest becker yeah and yeah I'm willing to leave it off because I do think we're going to do it either way. Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah. But we would do it sooner, I guess, if we... Yeah. All right. Well, let's keep keep it on reserve. Here's one that I think could be on the list. Uh, So this is from James Lawner. He quotes C.S. Lewis. He says, according to C.S. Lewis, friendship is born at the moment one person says, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. <laughs> yeah, Which is I a nice that. line. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. Uh, I worry that fracturing of culture into hyper-specific taste bubbles on the internet might reduce the instances of these serendipitous friendships. He says, personally, I've found tremendous edification in pursuing new interests with like-minded people met on the internet. However, I find myself less excited than in the past when meeting new people in, quote, meet space, as I can generally assume they won't share these idiosyncratic interests that I've been able to indulge online. Meet space. That's like yes. actual interpersonal yes, like in life. real life. That's IRL. What, have you heard that before? I never yeah. heard it. <laughs> um, this place is such a meat space. <laughs> I, I think what he's proposing is some sort of uh, intellectual version of grinder um, <laughs> or Tinder so, for you straighties. <laughs> what I <laughs> what I thought I don't. We've never done an episode on friendship in general and we could talk about friendship you know in the 21st century with some of these online you know you know now that uh, friendship in the internet age something like that 
But I would like, you know, to focus also on friendship in general. I, I really like that idea. I, um, even the discussion about the internet is so often really focused more on political discourse and fragmentation in that sense. Yeah. Um, that, that it excites me to even think of discussing it in terms of just friendship. <laughs> the positives and the negatives of being able to, to meet people with your really, really idiosyncratic, uh, porn preference. I mean, regular preference. <laughs> um, <laughs> is yeah. that how you choose your friends? Oh so, have- yeah. It's like, <laughs> you know what you I don't like ex hamster too what category I don't, know, yeah, I, don't know, I don't understand why all of those uh sites have like a uh social media share uh buttons on them <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> who would do that oh my god it's only there to freak you out into thinking that you might do it by mistake oh they um, he also says bonus content you could share what weird common interests cemented your friendship. I don't know if we've told that story, but there is one. It is pretty obvious um, (laughs) uh, to us at least. Um, Yeah. That would be a good chance to talk more about ourselves. All right. So is that on the list? That's on the list. Okay. My next one is personality psychology. So um, this was, let's see. NSO. Sorry. I had this too. Yeah, and then Travis Cotro seconded it. Um, and I think that that uh, we have never really tackled the topic of individual differences in personality. Um, and I think there's a lot of interesting things to talk about there. Of course, given the recent sort of controversy surrounding Facebook and, and Cambridge Analytica and stuff, I think people have been reading more about big five personality traits yeah. than they would normally. And I think it's worth it for a deep dive. And again, there, there's definitely people we could get on as guests who are real personality psychologists. Um, but even if we did a deep dive first, sort of a la intelligence episode, um, uh, and talk about that and, and really importantly, talk about why the Meyer Briggs is not a real, is that not a <laughs> real not thing? A, I've never no. taken it. No. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's very, very popular, but it's not, it, it's not a very good test and it's sort of frustrating to all personality psychologists that that it is sort of the, the ubiquitous personality test um okay and, i like that yeah. one i'll put that on is that three that is we have ethics of care friendship. friendship and meet space one personality psychology and the push probably not because right. we'll do it anyway and yeah. denial of death will do it anyway so yeah three official ones so far I, I thought this was interesting. I don't know if it's for the list, but wondered what you thought. This is from Nelson Doris. He says he'd be interested in the psychology and philosophy involved in child rearing. How did you shape your personal parenting philosophy? And Are there any parenting techniques that you think are particularly good and bad? What have you learned, if anything, from the process? Has your strategy changed over time? Yeah, that might be interesting. It's hard. It's one of those that I'm always uh, <laughs> really unsure. I think is maybe any parent should probably be unsure of their own parenting strategy because you, you definitely, the minute your kid does something horrible, people can be like, oh, here's the so-called expert. <laughs> well, I actually have a different, my, my, I think that, I mean, I can t- tell my parenting strategy and I think it's worked pretty well because Eliza's a awesome kid but i don't know if that would work for 
other kids, yeah. you know. Right. Right. <laughs> Plus there's a lot of there's a lot of genetics there um that that play a large yeah, role. Whoever we could get into in the per- <laughs> whoever her real dad is. <laughs> um seems like a good guy. Um yeah, okay. Well, let, maybe we'll let's wait to hear the the end because we're running out yeah. of space. So, the next one and really the last real one I have because I have another sort of this this is going to be my I have an audible at the end. Um and that is Again, maybe this won't be on the list because we've already sort of explicitly stated that we want to have Will McCaskill on the show, but uh, but there is a topic, and I think Lance Bush, my PhD student, um, uh, suggested this explicitly, the topic of moral uncertainty, which I find pretty fascinating, um, which would be different than just talking about consequentialism or effective altruism, um, but rather the idea here is given that we have no surefire way to know which moral theory is the correct one, um, what do we do? Like, is there a rational decision strategy for saying like, well, you know, for instance, what if it is the case that it is morally monstrous to eat meat or something like what, what is the probability that that is the right view? Um, And then what burden does that have on us? I think there's a lot of, of I think cool ideas that could come out of a discussion of just moral uncertainty, maybe, maybe just judgments under uncertainty in general, but especially moral uncertainty, given that it's not clear that we're going to ever know. Yeah. I like that. I think that's an interesting topic. It isn't one that we've discussed. I think it's fairly neglected. Also you people kind of feel like once you've got your theory down, what you think is the most plausible theory then you're done. And it actually, you know, the, depending on how much uncertainty there is, it, it could conceivably affect what theory you find to be the most plausible. Exactly. Yeah. And actually, I'm looking forward to to reading more about this. I, um, yeah. Because I, I don't even know if there's been any, I'd be interested in in seeing if anybody's done any empirical work on this. Like, um, So my next one is, I'm, I'm, <laughs> these probably aren't going to go on. But I would love to do these. So I'm just letting you know. A couple listeners I was gratified to see suggested that we do Twin Peaks Season 3. Right. Um, which, in my opinion, in my view, and I'm also happen to be right about this, is the greatest artistic achievement of the last 20 or 25 years. With no uncertainty. Uh, the problem is that not enough people have seen it and and that also you haven't seen it most right. uh, most seriously. But uh, I really would love to do that and I will, I'm trying to pressure Dave. I'm going to watch it. I think it just, uh, uh, it's just a matter of when. So, so I will agree to have that on a, as a future episode, probably not good to put on the list now because then it would pressure me in, into a timeline of having to watch the whole series, um, before yeah. we do our episode. Um, uh, um CD yeah. Wilford Jr. suggested three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, which I actually I think would be a great, a, a great episode. Um, cause I think there's a lot of interesting stuff on there. The Martin McDonough movie that then became weirdly a kind of Oscar controversy. I have yet to see that as well. Um, C.D. Wilford Jr. also told a story about his wearing the hoodie, the very bad wizard's hoodie, which you can get on Teespring, and 
worrying about it as a black man um is he reinforcing stereotypes because of the um the ape yeah that that's uh something that that didn't make me happy to read but it it definitely made me think um because again i would never be in a you know that just epistemically wouldn't enter my mind so it's good to hear that <laughs> that that perspective which just sad but but real yeah I, I get it i but i would love to do the both oh and someone also suggested the big lebowski which i really think we should do but we, we should, should we should save that as our final episode the big lebowski slash pulp fiction double double yeah. episode <laughs> we've been wanting to do that shit since like the first episode this one I don't think showed up. This is why I'm calling it my Audible, my last minute edition. And, and I wanted to see what you thought. I don't think it showed up on the official uh, Patreon suggestions, but we've definitely gotten suggestions about it many times. Measures of implicit bias. So so implicit bias in general, and then specifically. Yeah. The, the and it was just an article by John Dorgi. I even got uh, into it on Facebook a little bit with John Doris, which I didn't had no interest right. really in doing yep. yeah yep john doris uh laura Nimi, john doris and keith payne uh sort of defending the iat specifically uh the implicit association task and and the notion of implicit bias more generally well they don't this is part of the confusion and and lighter brian lighter has a big thing about this they don't actually defend the iat what they defend is the existence of a, a ton of evidence for implicit bias, even if the IAT is controversial. So I think they, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they defend it only on the grounds that, that they think that it's misunderstood what the IAT is purporting to do, to which do, is yeah. to measure sort of group differences. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we can see, we already are getting in the weeds of it. So yeah. So uh, this would be a good one. I would def I would definitely put on this list. I was going to propose that we, talk about this because again i found myself in a debate and not totally sure why you know because yeah but i guess it, it i hear just to tease this the article has a patronizing tone that i found that's what i was rebelling against because i don't have any i have no dog in the fight of implicit bias or not because i haven't looked at the research at all and um, and, and, and don't know enough about it to have an informed opinion. But my sense, knowing a bunch of people who are skeptical of the evidence right now, I didn't get the sense that they were committing the obvious fallacies that are attributed to them in this article. So that was what I was sort of objecting to. Right. Yeah. I think that it's obviously stems from your... Uh, deep racism <laughs> implicit racism but that's not uh, <laughs> implicit right it's just explicit uh, you know you might not know that that's why uh yeah yeah i mean yeah we get into that i mean it's it's unclear to me like clearly you've read probably philosophers critiques of this and this is a scientific american article you know that might actually be targeted at, at people who just <clears throat> got mad that hillary clinton said something about implicit bias you know it, I, I can see why it'd be hard to strike the tone it's not like scientific america isn't like usa today is it <laughs> no no but it's definitely <laughs> pop science right i mean it's not it, it's neither usa today nor is it 
noose. <laughs> yeah, um, no, that's fair. Which is why I should just stay out of it. Yeah. But I actually, I think there there are things to complain about in in their in their article as well. And I having being being a student at the time when the IT research was just getting off the ground uh, when I was in graduate school and being friends with Brian Nosek and and liking his advisor, Mazarin Banaji, who was a co-creator of it. I definitely have a natural desire to defend this stuff, but also, also there are problems. <laughs> so I think it would make for a really good... Well, you must be benefit. committing the divining rod fallacy then yeah, if you think there are problems. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, let's, I would throw that on the list, absolutely. Because okay, the list is... I, uh, it's got, we've gotten that suggestion from plenty of people yeah. um, before, so and I think it might actually. So that might be five. Here's two more that I have that we could consider to replace one of the other ones. Um, Jonathan Root suggested pedagogy, which I think would be an interesting one. How does your pedagogy inform teaching strategies, content, interaction with students, student assessment? Uh, and just, I think, uh, just a, a, a episode about pedagogy and teaching would be interesting. It's something that's so weirdly underdiscussed, given that yeah. we are teachers. Um, yeah, and yet I agree. we I've never been to talk about it with the, like. There's no real forum to talk about it with anybody. So right, right. I've been wanting to do this. I actually think this would be one where having uh, Paul as a guest might be fun as well. Um, because uh, I think you'd have a lot to say about teaching. Um, I'm going to give my last one, which, okay. is, which is a suggestion we got from more than one listener, not not Jordan Peterson. I think that's a great topic. <laughs> <laughs> and the, yeah. what, the wonderful thing about that topic is that we we, we have we have five of those already. <laughs> yeah, that supervenes on all our topics or something. <laughs> Is that a good? Uh, is that a good use of supervene? I don't know. I, I uh, yeah, probably I don't know. Not. This year, the philosopher of mind. <laughs> it's true. My first published paper. <laughs> um. So what do we have? Actually, I think we do. We have more than five. So we have, we to have narrow five. Down one. We landed on five. Ethics of care, uh, friendship online, meet space, uh, personality psychology, moral uncertainty, and implicit bias. But what about pedagogy? Oh, and pedagogy. That's the last one. But, uh, but you guys about, like, are our beloved $5 and up Patreon supporters will now decide which one of these we will do. Um, I don't know, within the next couple months anyway. Yeah. We could always put six up. Well, I guess we could. Why? Yeah. Why does it have to be five? There's no, no rule. You know, there's a, so we, we're making the rules here. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I really like, did have this idea that it had to be five, and there was no way. I like, mean, no, it's good to constrain ourselves because, or else, you'd have ten. Um, yeah. So I, I view it like as a victory whenever we do a top five, and you only come up with six. Do you think this will ever grow so big that it'll be like the Oscars, where there's a lot of controversy <laughs> over our selections and all the politics that go into, you know, how uh, one, how they're how the nominations are. Um, 100% yes. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Let's wrap this up because we have a whole live episode bonus content. This will be the first time ever. This this is a historic episode. The first time ever where we've had two opening 
questions. That's right. This is like a double episode. <laughs> it is a double episode. Hopefully you edit this so that it doesn't feel like a double episode. I know. Uh, it already feels like a double episode, just this segment. Uh, all right. All right. Guys, I'm not going to lie to you and say I eat a ton of protein bars because I don't. A lot of them, frankly, are kind of disgusting. They remind me of that taffy that old ladies used to give me when I was a kid. I don't know why these old ladies gave taffy to me all the time. And actually, why did my parents let me take the taffy from the old ladies? I mean, they were strangers. Anyway, as things get busier, or when I need to train for the MS-150, a bike ride from Houston to Austin, Texas that I'm not remotely in shape for yet, and I need a quick, nutritious meal, well, then it's not even a choice. I have an RX bar. RX bars don't need the fillers, the additives, the chemicals, or the added sugar. RX bars let their core ingredients do all the talking. It's like eating three egg whites, two dates, and six almonds with no BS and no taffy. It actually tastes good. And whether you like sweet or savory, chocolate or fruit flavors, there is an RX bar for you. RX bars are gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, and taffy-free. They're great for all sorts of occasions, snack at the office, breakfast or lunch on the go. And I know I'll be taking a bunch of my favorite RX bar flavors like sea salt chocolate and coconut chocolate on the MS-150 later this month so I don't collapse somewhere in hill country. And we are happy to offer a special bonus to our listeners. 25% off your first order. All you got to do is go to rxbar.com wizards and enter promo code wizards at checkout. Again, for 25% off your first order, visit rxbar.com wizards and enter promo code wizards at checkout. actually get to sean nichols i'd like to take maybe an even briefer moment this time to thank uh, our supporters given that this is damn near a double episode uh just tamla and i as usual want to extend our gratitude to everybody who writes in who listens uh, and lets us know who contacts us um who supports us financially uh, this is really this this means a lot to us so if you would like to contact us uh, for the sake of discussion you can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. 
you could tweet to us at Very Bad Wizards, at Tamler, at Pease. Um, you could engage in our Facebook or Reddit discussions. Uh, you can also follow our activity on Instagram. And you could even comment on Patreon. There's there's no lack of ways to get to get in touch with us. Um, and we do try to, to at least look at everything. So thank you for all of those messages uh, and all of your communication. It means a lot to us. And if you would like to support us in, in financial ways, you can go very easily to verybadwizards.com slash support and see the various ways there. Um, as you already know from listening to this episode, uh, you can become a Patreon and, and support us uh, with a small monthly donation for which you'll get something in exchange. Um, you can give us a one-time donation uh, from via PayPal, or you can go to Amazon and do your regular shopping by clicking through our button first, and we'll get a, a small piece of that, and that, that came through uh, a lot in the holiday month. So thank you all for that. And uh, there's one other way to support us within the next couple of months. Yes, so... As you may have heard, I have this book coming out on May 8th called Why Honor Matters. I've been working on this book for almost four years now. I'm really proud of it. I'm nervous. I'm excited. Um, the book explores all these dimensions of honor. It offers a defense of honor, or I guess more specifically, a defense of honor with constraints. I use a lot of examples from movies, literature, anthropology, even social psychology. Why not? And we'd like to offer you, and I really thank Dave for this, a little incentive to help support and promote this. For all of our VBW listeners, if you pre-order the book um, and you give us proof of purchase, you'll have access to a brief bonus episode on the topic of the book. We haven't figured out what we're going to do yet. I'm sure Pizarro will side with the smug, self-congratulating Kantian Enlightenment Mafia. But we'll try to make it entertaining. But this will be something we haven't decided yet, uh, uh, but something that is relevant to honor to some of the arguments that Tamler makes. Maybe something to do with interesting films or TV shows. Uh, and what we'll, we'll do is make that available to all those who pre-order. I think it would be a great way to support not just Tamler, but this podcast as well. Um, and and the extra bonus is that you can read, uh, read also on top of this bonus is that you can read the book, disagree with Tamler and write him and let him know yeah. what you think. And I think we have a shot to show uh, the publisher that the very bad Wizards listening audience actually cares. Yeah. <laughs> this won't replace the yeah. actual discussion that will be yeah. available to everybody yeah. um, where where I will save all my wonderful witticisms and scathing critiques about the book uh for for the full length episode which will be fun don't you um, have to this, read the book to give a scathing critique i mean Maybe i not. will i don't know I, we didn't we didn't really read josh green's <laughs> <That's true. laughs> i feel like i already pre-committed to critiquing it before i read it <laughs> i'm definitely like stressed out like now that it's approaching a little bit more than i thought i would be you know but I don't. I don't blame you, and I don't envy you, man. I mean, it's it's it's. it's uh, I would be. I'm stressed out about it, so I can't imagine, dude. And like, it's next. just gonna get bad reviews sometimes, and like, that's never happened to me. <laughs> that I'm just gonna get like shit on by some. You know what? Fuck. It, uh, what's sad is that you'll be lucky to get a bad review it, right. just because it means you got reviewed right and that's something i can't stomach i can't stand the thought of it like i can't yeah so thank you to everybody who has pre-ordered already i really appreciate it i, I can't tell you how much i appreciate that 
And for those of you who haven't yet but might be interested, there's still a few weeks to go. It comes out on May 8th, so um, we'll provide all the information for where to upload your receipt and how to access your bonus episode shortly. All right, let's get to Sean Nichols. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Sean, ever since we started this podcast, almost six years ago, you've been skeptical, derisive, dismissive. You've relentlessly made fun of it from the beginning. And yet, here you are. What changed your mind? <laughs> oh my God. Uh, you were both be here. Like, I'm friends with both of you, and I thought maybe it'd be fun. And I feel like... I would listen to, you know, I don't listen to Very Bad Wizards, but sometimes I think if, if, if you didn't die, like if you had an eternal life and time was no issue, then, I don't know, maybe I would. Like, um. yeah, I, I have a story, which is, this actually, both Steve Sitch and Sean Nichols uh, were complaining in front of me that they had never been asked to be on Very Bad Wizards, and I said, do you, well course like do you want to be on and they were like no no (laughs) (laughs) so we're going to talk today about um your paper that came out very recently right 2018 Uh, i don't think it's out yet i think it's just online oh it's online yeah so um and it is called death in the self (laughs) death in the self he's he's first author even on it <laughs> and it's a it's a paper one of those papers where you went in there uh, with a hypothesis and the exact opposite happened in the results. So can you briefly describe the paper and the astonishing results as you describe it? <laughs> I, mean, I didn't say that. You did say um, stuff. Uh, so we um uh so we'd done a bunch of work on i'd done a bunch of work on how changing views about the self would change um judgments about things like punishment and judgments about um charity people would give more money if they thought the self changed a lot this is inspired by derek parfit ultimately but inter- the intermediate person was dan bartels um and i presented this stuff at a at a buddhist conference um and jay garfield said of course you don't get, um, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to add that. We didn't get any effect for death. I thought, well, if you think the self changes a lot, Parfit says you shouldn't be as afraid of death if you think you're not going to be the same person in 40 years. So we tried this on Western subjects, and they, like, m- no effect at all. Saying the self changed a lot, getting them to think that doesn't change their attitudes about death. So we decided, um, or I presented this to the Buddhists, and Jay Garfield said, that's because you're testing the wrong population. Like, why would you expect U.S. people on online to be able to really think that there's no self and that the self doesn't continue. You really need to test Tibetan Buddhists because they actually think there's no self. Like if you just ask them on the street, is there a self? They'll say no. So we, um, <laughs> we went to India and tested Tibetan Buddhists. And, Did and, you actually go to India? Yeah. Jay and I went to India. Um, we had... Um, was like, I thought it was M-Turk India. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, so we went to India and trained some um, Tibetan students to go to Tibetan monasteries and interview Tibetan um, monastics. And uh, they were two parts. We interviewed them about to what extent they thought there was a self that continued. We did this in the U.S. and with Hindus in um, the Varnasi region, the Orthodox Hindu region. Um, and we found as predicted, that there were massive differences in the extent to which they thought there was a self um, across lots of different measures, some of which were kind of indirect. The Tibetan monastics basically... Did you report them all? 
Yeah, yeah, we okay. report all of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, if we science. Did, if, science. We, if we didn't report them, it was only because there were too many things to report. Okay. Like, um, but yeah, so we have massive effects there where they say you're not the same person across time. There's no self that continues. Then the other part was testing the extent to which people were afraid of death. And our prediction was that the Tibetans, insofar as they, they didn't think that there was a self, they would be less afraid of death. But they were massively more afraid of death, more afraid of death than Western atheists. Um, <laughs> so so that, that's what surprised us. I have us. a question about that. It, it sounds from the paper like you tested at different times. Was it a different set of people or was this all... Were, were they asked, do you believe in the self? And then shortly after asked, do you believe in it? it was- no, it was the same time. We varied the order in which okay. they were asked. And yes. that, that's yeah. what I was getting at. Do, do, do they have any feeling that they're being inconsistent? Uh, so, As might be shown by order effects? Right. One, no, there was no order effect. Um, we sent, part of our, our um, plan was to send Tibetan, um, Tibetan kids, basically. These were like 20-year-old Tibetan students into the monastery so that it wasn't really primed that they were being asked Kwe Buddhists what their views were because they were just being asked by, you know, kids that were just like their kids. Um, uh, so that, that didn't seem to, it didn't seem to trigger thoughts about, oh, this is what a Buddhist should say. We independently, though, asked some Buddhists at the Central University of Tibetan Studies, we said, as a good Buddhist, how would you respond to this? Um, and they were like, no fear, no fear at the death of self. Um, so... So what was the measure then that you used to determine that they had great fear of death? So they were, we used two different measures. So one of them was the standard fear of personal death scale, and there are a bunch of different components to it. Um, one of them, though, is the um, self-annihilation. Like, what I fear about death um, is the death of the self or the death of person, the, the, um, the destruction of personality. So we thought that was the thing. Like, that was the factor that we would get this big difference on where the Tibetans would be um, less fearful about death of self because they don't believe in the self. Um, it turns out... Um, that's the one thing they were especially afraid of. Everything else, they were just like everybody else. Like the scale was perfectly normal across the, the, the rest of the items. It was just death of self that they showed this fear for, death of annihil- self-annihilation. So. That's right. I mean, I, like having been raised in a very religious way, like believing, I was raised Seventh-day Adventist, and we, like, we believed that there was going to be this end of days persecution. And so I believed it with all my heart, and I believed that it was going to end up well, but I was still scared shitless. But in this case, it doesn't make any sense because they don't, they're, they're literally responding that they're afraid of something that they've literally just said doesn't exist. So did you prompt anybody? Was there any? I know it's very rare that you get the chance to like, but just be like, so what do you mean you're afraid of what you don't believe in? Like, I don't, it's like, I don't believe in whatever Smurfs, but they scare the shit out of me. Like, I don't, it doesn't, but you don't believe in them. It's like, not to pull a conceptual analysis, because uh, I'm a psychologist, but it's like they don't really know what it means to believe in that this stuff doesn't exist. Is there a particular Smurf you're more, <laughs> mo- most scared of? It's a, it's a pop, pop a Smurf. <laughs> <laughs> no, we didn't ask them those questions. I mean, there's, there is a, a big question about what's going on here. Why is it that they, they, they basically 
toe the line of doctrine when you ask them questions about the self. Um, across, as I said, even on pretty indirect measures. So another thing we did, this isn't in the paper um, because the referees were brutal about what we could include, but, but we did test of essentialism, the sort of classic test that you get in um, Frank Kyle's ex- experiments. So we did experiments something somewhat like that, and the Tibetan Buddhists, they were significantly less essentialist. They were significantly more likely to say, oh, if you, if you change this horse in these ways, um, now it's a deer. Um, whereas like the Westerners were, and, and the Hindus were not likely to do that. So even on these relatively implicit things, indirect things, um, we were getting like doctrinaire responses. Um, but it did not get, it didn't seep into fear of death. It really just didn't get there. I, I have to admit, I really wanted, this would be unethical in most universities, probably, but like actually put them in a situation where they might die. <laughs> I'm saying, yeah, and you, no, it like makes what sense, What kind right? of situation? Like, uh, like put a gun to their head. <laughs> I mean, if you want to know whether someone's afraid of death, I feel like self-report isn't the way to go. <laughs> Behavioral. Like Taylor's yeah. always saying that he's not afraid of death, but I, like... If you use like peeing your pants as a dependent variable, I'm, I'm I bet ready. You he would, I'm ready to die. Yeah, you're ready. <laughs> so, you got some other surprising results, also related to, or at least surprising in light of their lack of belief or their belief in a no self or a lack of a continuing self. Can you describe those results? Well, we uh, we also included um, uh, a vignette where we had people imagine that they would, would had some terminal disease and they could be given a pill that would let them live for another six months. But um, that same pill could be given to someone else. <laughs> there was only one of them or whatever. I don't remember the details. But, um, <laughs> but then we just varied how long that pill would, would give the other person, give the other person three months or six months or a year or four years or five years. And we found that the Christians and the Hindus were like, the mean response was that about two and a half years or so, they would say that that's when they would give the pill to the other, the other person. And then the majority of Tibetan monks said, never. <laughs> I would never give that pill. <laughs> give me those six months. Um, that, that also, we were just shocked by that. So um, is this the egocentricity scale? Uh, so it's an intertemporal scale. So imagine that you have a terminal disease that will kill you in six months unless you take a medication. There's only one dose of the medication available. If you take the medication, it will prolong your life by six months. So if you take the medicine, you will live for 12 months instead of six. If you don't take the medication, it will go to someone else who has the same condition and will die in six months. This person is very much like you, but a stranger whom you will never meet or be in contact with. And then they varied the duration of the life that the other person would have. It's a very Dan Bartelsi kind of question. Yeah. yeah. Um, so on your reading, it's, it's that like, these are huge, like compared to the other ones, these, these graphs and we'll put, sorry for the sake of people who listen to this later, we'll put a link to this paper, but those were the, these were the findings that surprised me the most because they really, so they really, really compared to every other group were like, no, fuck no. Like, no, like <laughs> and, and, um, but there's one reading where they could just be like, well, I am bringing such good to the world. Like my right. life is really right. more valuable. Yeah. Um, even if you say it's a stranger whom I don't know, like that, right. but I, yeah, that could be. Um, and, and it isn't clear why we get that result. We did ask, um, you know, we asked these questions when we were at the, we are, we, our research base was at the central university of Tibetan studies outside of Varnasi. And we asked the um, the guy who ran the uh, the university, who's a distinguished Buddhist scholar, 
about this? And we said, you know, when would you know what would you do in this case? Where, when would you give the pill? And he said, three months. No, I, you know, I, I have more life. Six months. Basically said, it's a tie. Like, I'd, I'd keep the pill. Nine months, no, you have to give it to the other person. So he was just like out of the gate. He was like, no, you, you need to give. And he was like the most significant um, Buddhist intellectual it, at the school. So what's your explanation for these results? I guess there's two broad possibilities. One is that the measures were messed up in some way. That's not my explanation. Yeah, I, I wouldn't think so. <laughs> I mean, no, but it is really good that you got the essentialism results to show yeah. that they're being, like that you have at least some measures that are sensitive to this belief and it's just not, yeah. And then the other is that this is really how the, <laughs> the Buddhists uh, the, uh, and the monasteries are, that they really do fear death more, that, they're, that they value their life more over and they value their continuing identity more than the continuing identity of strangers. So, yeah, how do you explain it? You mean the, the, the overall pattern of data, um, so the, the fear of death and the trade-off thing, I think that there are, two, there are two things. One is just to explain why we don't get less fear of death. So just starting with that. So that was our prediction. And I, let me say, I was so surprised when I got these results. I wrote to... Astonished. Yeah. I don't know why I use that word. But, um, but I wrote to the guy in India that was doing the... He was getting, collecting the data. And I said, Arun, I think you might have flipped the scale. I think you had strongly agree right. on the wrong side. And he said, no. He said, I checked. He said... And he works there. And he was like, I don't think they're going to be very happy about this. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, do you think they're rejecting? Do you think they're saying this like they're being honest? And if you had an item that said, "I wish I didn't believe this," that they would say, "Like, I, mean, I wish sounds, I, I wish I weren't afraid." Yeah, like, I, like I'm just admitting to you that that this is the part of my Buddhism that hasn't made itself into we, a philosopher might call it a second order desired. As <laughs> <laughs> so I've heard. Yeah, I mean, maybe so. Um, yeah, so the. So one thing, why don't they show less fear? And I think everybody on the team, Jay, Nina Gar- Nina, Jay Garfield, Nina Strominger, and Arun Rai, um, has the same view about that. It's that the, the, the way we think about ourselves um, as continuing entities in biological life is just very hard to extirpate. You just can't pull that out. It's just there's something about that that... Um, even though you say there's no self, when it comes to thinking about death, it's just too hard to extract that from your, from your ordinary way of um, reacting to those situations. But then there's the question, why are they more afraid? Yeah. And there, Jay and I don't... Um, Jay does, I think there's an obvious explanation, which is Tibetan Buddhists in monasteries are told to think about death all right. the time. Like, all the time. Um, uh, they just look... I, all day long, like... <laughs> Sorry, I was making a facial expression. <laughs> that can be the image. I'm not yeah. sure what that facial expression was. It was my, the D face, death face. Um, Wait, uh, so that they're they, they're so focused on it that they're con- it's just constantly present in their minds, whereas we sort of just pretend that it's never going to happen. Yeah, I think that you just heighten your anxiety about it by thinking about it all the time. I mean, you might think like, so there's this, there's this um, story from the Buddha where he's asking people um, how much they think about death. And the first guy says, oh, I think about it um, every day. And the Buddha's like, 
not good enough. And then the next guy says, I think about it with every, every bite I take. And the Buddha's like, better, but still not very good. And then the next guy says, I think about death with every breath I take. And, and then the Buddha goes silent because I guess maybe that's enough. Um, <laughs> um, but it just seems like, um, that doesn't seem like a recipe for like having a lot of composure in the face of death. Maybe better just to like have a gin and tonic. Right? <laughs> yes. Which we should be having right now, but yeah. we forgot. <laughs> so um, one thing that struck my skeptical eye is a little note at, towards the end of the paper where you say that none of your participants were long-term meditators. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know how long-term meditator is defined, but certainly in the tradition that I'm familiar with, meditation is hugely important for experiencing the no-self at a deeper level. So if you're not a meditator, maybe you're just spouting doctrine the way a Christian who's having multiple affairs or whatever is spouting doctrine, but their actions and, and maybe true beliefs belie. Could it be that, that they just, that you really do need to meditate in order to truly experience the, the no-self that some Buddhists claim to experience? I mean, I'm not sure if that's what... Um I'm not sure if that's the aspect of meditation that would be relevant, but we did not test long-term meditators, or at least we didn't identify them. There's no particular reason to think that many of the people in our group were long-term meditators. And we have planned to try to look at long-term meditators, um, and I don't know, maybe we'll do that ultimately. But, but, and, and our prediction is that we will get different responses there. Of course, our prediction this time was we would get different responses, so I don't know. But then there's this worry, like, you know, uh, just for a, from the marketing perspective, so if you think like, you know, I have various worries about like death, and if I could get myself to think the way Buddhists do, maybe I wouldn't be afraid of death. And you're like, that's not enough. Like 10,000 hours of meditating, that's what you need. I'm like, I'll just go back to the alcohol. Like, you know? Um, so if the cost of like being a successful Buddhist in terms of like reducing your fear of death is that you need to spend 10,000 hours meditating, which is how long-term meditation is defined. The Malcolm Gladwell meditation. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I'm just like, that is a lot of time I could be spent doing something else. Like, you could be listening maybe to so much very bad wisdom. Yeah, yeah. They're not mutually exclusive. You can meditate and then go have your drinks. <laughs> You could get a little like beer hat <laughs> while you meditate. Um, so, I, is is a plausible explanation that this is a group that has self-selected? They're just scared to shit of death, and they become monks. Um, it's a that's a good question, and the answer is no. Um, so, it turns out that um, in this I don't believe you. As in lots of other traditions, no. Um, the, they get sent to be they get sent to monasteries when they're very young. So, and it's like families, they're just like, you know, a lot of families are like, well, one of the kids is going to go to the monastery. Um, and so it's not like these, you, you know, <laughs> like, how do they, like, do they flip a coin? I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. They're, well, they're selected. They're, they're not selected, self-selected. Right. They're, um, they're p-hacked by their parents. <laughs> they pick their, the worst kid and they pretend to flip a coin until it's like, <laughs> <laughs> two out of three. Tamler goes. <laughs> three out of five. Um, 
I mean, I, it makes sense to me, Tamler, your analogy to the Christian who has affairs, like the least the Christian would have the presence of mind to not write down on a self-report study that some international dude is doing. Yeah, I actually have slept with three women outside of my marriage in the last month. But the, they're reporting it. So like doctrine is making its way to one set of questions, but not to the other set of questions. And I think it just maybe really is that that... And I just have problems with this belief in no self. And I know every, everybody who seems to understand it thinks that I'm stupid for not understanding it. But nobody no. There are things that you can't, you just cannot do. Like, I cannot, the next time I see you, say, like, so who are you? Like, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Uh, you have to act but as I, if I don't, right? That's not the view that you would not recognize people. No, no, that- no but, but you are treating <laughs> the person as if it is the same person in a way that is, I, like, that's, I guess my point is like, there's no good way to treat somebody as if identity isn't continuous. Like you can't, how, how would you yeah, So how do you understand no self or do you? Oh, Sean, me? yes. Oh, I don't want that question. <laughs> um, uh, I'm going to go to- It's a gotcha it, question. Sam Harris, <laughs> Sam Harris spent an hour trying to explain it to us. Yeah, and Robert Wright, you went Robert on Robert Wright. Wright's podcast, right? So you should have some- Oh yeah, Some I mean, view about this. Yeah, I I do have views. I think that the I think that the the core no self view in Buddhism, which is really extreme, it says there's no self either synchronically or diachronically. I think the synchronic view that there's no self at a moment, that there's just like fleeting things happening. Um, I just think that's really implausible, and it's implausible for obvious reasons like cross modal integration. Like you know, you see and you hear something and you process like the McGurk effect. For God's sake, I mean, like really simple things where you know that two different modalities are working together and it's not like they're unaware of this like there um there's a famous problem of like i touch what i see and how can that be they recognize that there's there's an issue here and there are like there are volumes and volumes trying to solve the problem but you might think that yeah that the reason there are volumes is because the problem is just devastating like it is a it is a devastating objection to that view um but diachronically i think that there really is something about and and here's the way that i think that it's plausible that the way we ordinarily think of ourselves is as a continuing entity that doesn't change, the entity itself doesn't change, attributes change, while, while you're the same person, the attributes change. That, I think, is implausible. Um, and the Buddhists also think that's implausible, and they think that instead of thinking that, we sh- you should think is that there's just a bunch of stuff that's constantly changing. Um, and that does seem like that is a viable philosophical position, I think. And that doesn't run afoul of like the cross-modal stuff. And so you could just be, I mean, you didn't ask it this way, but you could always be afraid of death for this like person in the present, this thing, like it's not, you're not committing an error if you say this thing that is thinking doesn't want to die right now. Well, except insofar as you think that this thing that is thinking doesn't just well, like, refer I guess it to does some kind of inter- time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's no moment. <laughs> right. There's no clear gun to your head. I don't know. I can't wrap my head around, around it and, I, and it frustrates me to no end. To try to, I mean, so I've listened to a lot of interviews where people have been asked this question who claim to have experienced no self to some degree. And part of the problem is if, you're, if you come from our perspective, by definition, it's going to be really hard to explain and hard to articulate what it could possibly mean, which is why the practice is the thing that they say. It's like, you're not going to understand by me explaining it to you. You're only going to understand through the practice. It'll, 
I don't know, bleep, uh, it'll just seep into you and, ver- and gradually and only gradually and probably not to the full extent. So I, I, I do think that, that <coughs> it would be worth testing this on long-term meditators um, don't, don't you worry about that though? Like if you do all this work, then you can finally have this experience of something that we can't really understand that what you're doing is you're just, it's just sort of cultish brainwashing and right. they're reaching a state that doesn't actually reflect anything that's metaphysically viable. Um, I didn't know you were so anti-Buddhist. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm totally pro. He's just anti-Tibet. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Let's kill this podcast now. <laughs> Don't confuse racism for some dogmatic view about religion. (laughs) Wait, there's something I think important to point out in this that might get to this question, which is that um, the fear of of death scale, the fear of personal death scale has six factors. So loss of self-fulfillment, loss of social identity, consequences to family and friends, transcendental consequences, self-annihilation and punishment in the hereafter. And it is the big effect is only that the self annihilation is more in in the Buddhists, um, and and from from what you say, it sounds like there were non there were no differences in the other. There ones. there were some differences. Were some differences. I don't remember the details, but okay. but I know that for instance, the punishment was no different. So they just had just as as little fear of punishment in the afterlife or whatever. Okay, because um, I mean. There's one possibility that is when a when a Westerner like an ignorant one like me hears the items that say, "Do you fear the self being annihilated?" It means little to me. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have the mm-hmm. vocabulary to even know. I are you just asking me if I'm afraid of death? And I say, but because the Buddhist perspective places so much of an emphasis on that, maybe they they realize the gravity of the question and its difference from the other ones in a way that makes them take it more seriously and indicate that that this is what the thing that should make you uncomfortable about death is this thing not the other things mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. i don't know if that can account for it but well i mean the problem with that is that we do have the other results from the people we said as a good buddhist how would you respond yeah. and then they they respond appropriately i mean one thing that happened when we were doing that we were designing the studies and we were talking to the students who were going to go out and do the research for us. I remember this one Tibetan student, I don't know, he's probably 20 years old. And I just said, I said, so, you know, what do you, this is before we had any results at all. And I said, so like, what do you think um, about the self after death? And he says, well, I, you know, I know that that won't be me, you know, because there is a belief that something continues, but it's not the self. And I said, so what do you think about that? And he said, well, I know that won't be me. And I thought, yes, we're totally going to get like Tibetan Buddhists don't believe in the self and they're not afraid of it. I forgot to do the follow-up question. Like, how do you feel about that? (laughs) (laughs) Are you afraid of death, Sean? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, <laughs> yeah, we I have to a, really I put a mock on to it. She, uh, no, because we've had this discussion on the podcast. He's much more. Of, I mean, I think there's like I'm like a now, like I'm afraid, like I'll have an aneurysm today. Yeah, <laughs> like that's how afraid of death I am. Whereas I just, I, that's never been something that has preoccupied my attention. So where are you on that spectrum? I think that the idea of like, and, and the, I think the Buddhist view might help to beat back this thought, but the idea that I will never experience again, like there'll be a point where that, that won't happen. What the, the Buddhist tries to argue that it's a mistake to think that that was going to happen anyway. Um, that, that obviously you're not going to think again, like in, in 10 years, that what's changed will be sufficient that 
what you thought was going to be the same isn't the same anyway. Um, that idea, I find a powerful way to sort of beat that back. In, in theory, it doesn't seem to work in practice, at least with what we looked at. Um, but yeah, I think that people who don't find that somewhat like disturbing when they think about it are like, I think they're just not being honest with themselves. You know that bit on the onion where they trained the, the gorilla to, or maybe it was a chimpanzee to understand yeah. what death is. And they're like, I feel like that's what I want to do to you. I just want to make you just cry with your fear of death now. Don't you realize you won't like, you'll have nothing. It will be nothing. You'll be zero. Okay. No, I mean, I get it. I get what I, I get how you it works. You get I don't, it. It's not like I think I'm going to be in my coffin, like, you know, on my iPhone, but <laughs> it, it's Tamar that Summers has died. It's, it's, Two it's a, you know, it's a human thing. It doesn't trigger any anxiety in me. Okay. The fact that that will happen one day. But uh, to get back to this, isn't there a real reason, like a real way in which suppose that I drink the fucking Parfit Kool-Aid or whatever it is, like the Buddhist Kool-Aid. And I really don't believe in personal identity over time. And I accept it as an illusion. Isn't it still the case that when I'm dead, I won't even have the illusion? And, like, I enjoy the illusion? So that changes. It's not as if, like, they talk about personal continuity as being like, oh, don't you realize the next morning you wake up, it's the same as dying? But no, because I wake up with the illusion. (laughs) Like, one day I just won't wake up with an illusion. No, but, I mean... No, go ahead. (laughs) It's a question for you. Well, I think that the, um, so I think the Buddhist response to that is that it's a mistake to think that the same person wakes up, the same like self wakes up to have the illusion. It's a different self with the illusion. Like a reference problem of some sort. Like, yeah. yeah. God damn it. (laughs) Who can solve this for me? Should we we take a few questions? Yeah, there must be questions. So because obviously we don't have that many microphones, um, I don't know whether we should, this one has a long long cord. So, Please. So I was thinking of two hypotheses about why they might. I'm Isaac Wigman. I'm from uh, San Marcos, Texas. Uh, I had a couple of hypotheses. One hypotheses. One one is that uh, maybe maybe people in uh, monasteries uh, may, maybe it just tends toward um, self absorption or something like that. So maybe if you test <laughs> people coddled. in like. In like Christ, Christian monasteries or Catholic monasteries or something like that, you might get a similar effect or something like that. And then the other thought is, um, what was it? This is a nice way um, of saying there's a deep compound in your studies. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and the other thought, well, I forgot the other thought because I'm on the spot. But maybe maybe it'll 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 occur to me I after apologize. you answer For, that question. It's because I interrupted you. <laughs> oh no, that's okay. That's okay. Um, so yeah, we haven't thought about doing that. Uh, we did test. Um, non-monastic Buddhists, and so both in um, India and in Bhutan, and they, so they were not in monasteries, and they showed less doctrinaire responses and normal levels of fear of death. So, so we did get a difference between the monastics and the non-monastic Buddhists um, in both ways. I mean, they, both, they were less likely to say there's no self, um, and they were less likely to show high fear of death. Their responses were relatively normal, a little, a little more fearful than uh, the Westerners and the Hindus. But we've never looked at um, people, in, non-Buddhists in monasteries. It's a really good idea, and actually a lot more um, tractable than, than long-term meditators who are a hard population to get access to. Why are they so hard to get access to? Because there, there aren't that many of them, and people want to put them in brain scanners. I mean, they're, they're like, yeah, so that they can show that the brain changes when you meditate. So the, the other hypothesis is just maybe they're, they're more honest 
uh, or something like that about their fear of, of death in the South Report? I don't think so. Maybe, although, I mean, you wonder why they're more honest about that and not the other parts. Like, why are, why are they distinctively afraid of self-annihilation and not of the other things? And so the honesty would, um, it seems like it would, you would generally have differences um, in the scale that we don't find. We find it unique to self-annihilation. I think that really, I mean, the the... the I think, why do we get the self-annihilation effect? It's because that's the thing they think, that's the thing they're worried about not continuing. The other, like, it's, it's that feature of the view that generates the response. And so it doesn't seem like any, any other kind of like, oh, there's something wrong with the, the language. Um, it doesn't seem like it captures the fact that we're getting the effect on exactly the spot that the philosophy touches. Actually, the, in one way to look at these data is that the non-religious atheists are the weirdest ones of all because... Presumably, the Indian Christian, um, and in some cases the Tibetan, believe in an afterlife. So if I'm a Christian, I believe when I die, my soul will go to heaven. That ought to lead me to fear death less. Um, and so the non-religious atheists, it could be that the action is there. That is, the, the, the Tibetans have the right idea, and that's why they're afraid more than the person who believes the personal identity will be preserved the moment they die. Right? So if I really believe my soul is going to heaven, why, I really ought not fear death that much. Like, if anything, I get more powers. I can float around and, like, watch my relatives and stuff. Well, I think it's going to heaven. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's true. I failed, I failed to put myself in the perspective of, some, of a bad person. Um, uh, and the non-religious atheists should be the ones that are freaking out the most. Yeah, yeah, I was surprised by that. I was surprised yeah. that, that the non-religious atheists didn't show more fear of death, and that it was pretty. I mean, basically, but we know they're all stable. cocky and stuff. Like it's like the new atheists. I don't they're know. like, I don't I'll know. never die. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever been religious? Uh, yeah, I was raised Catholic, and believing yeah, all totally. of it. Yeah, I totally believe so all of it. Yeah. Can't you just yeah. tell he has guilt about everything? <laughs> Hey, Eddie Namias from Georgia State, known as Fredo on the show. <laughs> Glad you embraced it. So here's a hypothesis, and it's hard to phrase, but it's similar to something uh, Sean and, and Dave both said. Maybe the idea is that the Buddhists have actually come to realize the thing that the rest of us fear, and they've realized that's bad. And so they fear it because they know it's true. So the analogy would be like, most people don't know they're as dumb or incompetent as they actually are. Some people, the enlightened, do, but they don't like that. So they fear being dumb and incompetent too. They recognize that's true. And then when you ask them, do they fear it? They say, sure, because right. I know it's true. Right. So is there somewhere, something in the ballpark there that... I, I think there's something there. So I think that what... Th this seems pretty clear that they are... They recognize, they think the self dies at biological death and that's something they're afraid of and and you might think that's something Tamla should be afraid of too um the what's funny though is that the doctrine doesn't say the self dies at biological death the doctrine says the self doesn't exist or at most it dies constantly like it's you don't have to wait and you know you don't have to yeah but but they're not um so you're reborn constantly <laughs> Um, so they, they show distinctive fear. I, we didn't ask this, but I mean, if you said, do you fear like tomorrow or how much are you afraid of tomorrow? Like, I don't think they'd be like, oh my God, I'm terrified tomorrow. Cause I'll... I mean, in some sense they should just 
right, if, if it were possible, which is not <laughs> to override biological impulses with these beliefs, then they shouldn't be afraid of anything. That is, fear is, it doesn't make sense, right? Because, because the biological response of fear is threat to the organism. If you just annihilate the organism in your conceptual world, like what, then it just, but neither should most other emotions, I suppose. Although they do promote emotion. So one thing that um, we've been working on lately, I've been working on with uh, a Buddhist philosopher, Mana Machada, is um, the role of shame in Buddhist philosophy. So shame is supposed to be really important. And you might think that's weird if you don't think that there's a self. And so, um, so what are you ashamed of? But, but maybe, maybe shame isn't really the right translation, we think. Maybe, maybe when they say shame, they mean something more like conscientiousness that doesn't have to be a self-focused. They also have blame the practices of blame and punishment don't they mm-hmm. and they don't they don't think of this as inconsistent do they just compartmentalize this well you you could think that there is i mean i i don't know the work on this but one it seems perfectly coherent to say well the self is constantly changing but the way the changes come about will be affected by reinforcement learning and so i'll use some kinds of reinforcement because i want i want selves overall to be more like this for like person at time eight should be better than person at time seven. Yeah, yeah. Or whatever at time seven. And they do <laughs> reject retributive forms of punishment, I in think, practice. for the most part. I don't know From in all practice. all the kung fu movies I see, they're always, like, smacking their... <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> like Shaolin Buddhists, like, they're, like, you know, smacking their... <laughs> this is saying it's bad, you know. <laughs> Hi, my name is Trip Glazer. I'm from the University of Arkansas. And I had a, another idea, which is maybe humility plays a role in the effect, where the idea is that if you fear death, then it's because you still believe that there is a self that is continuing. And so the thought is that for the monastics, um, to suggest that they are unafraid of death would be to imply that they are perhaps farther along in their spiritual development than they in fact feel. And so, um, what do you think of that as a possible explanation of the effect? Um, th- that's interesting. I mean, one thing that seems um, not explicable in terms of humility is the fact that they're selfish with the drug. Um, so the two effects really kind of reinforce each other in yeah. a way that suggests that there is, there is a, like a, a somewhat disturbing signal here um, that we're picking up with the two different measures. Um, so you, you said uh, earlier... Uh, just in conversation, that there was some reaction to this from, from like the official Buddhists. Yeah, like, JJ, how widely is this podcast listening? <laughs> Nobody listens. So, okay, good, good. good. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> so Jay presented it um, at the Central University of Tibetan Studies, and they were unhappy. And they said, like, um, why are you trying to ruin the Dharma? Huh. Whatever that is. Um, Wow. But so they, are they, you come like, around actually. I are think you going to get excommunicated? No, no, no. No, I think that um, Jay's back there working again. Um, I think that ultimately they just they just think that you know this these these responses weren't representative for some reason. Um, they don't they don't like yeah. it. I mean, I, I mean, I do think it it has it's it's not what you would want if you thought Buddhism was going to address these kinds of problems. However, it is part of the Buddhist tradition that it will be extremely difficult to stop thinking that way about the self. That's, so you might think that what you get in the, in the monasteries are people have the sort of first level, like the theoretical 
like belief that there's no self, but really internalizing that, the tradition says that that's going to be really difficult and maybe very few people will be able to do it. So I think that that's, that's philosophically available. Yeah, and that's the, that ties back to the meditation because right. a, as a way of getting there, it's not, you're not going to get there from reading a lot of books and taking classes. You have to do the daily 10,000 hours or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot. Uh, is there an, a meditation app that can target my fear of death specifically? <laughs> Hi, my name is Pavel Lachowski. I'm from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Um, <laughs> on, so on the Tamler to uh, Dave scale, I'm a Dave. Uh, <laughs> so, are we talking about attractiveness? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sure. Um, I have like a bout of allergies right now, and I seriously thought twice at least today that this is how I was going to die, and what a yeah. shame it was that that was going to happen to such a promising young man. Uh, <laughs> And I just want to clarify the good doctor's advice because I always thought, well, Buddhism is going to be a retreat from this fear. Eventually, I'd, I'd get to do it. But the advice here is I should turn to alcohol, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I mean, you know, any sort of metaphorical opiate. <laughs> no, I think so. I think that the one way to take this in a, in a friendlier direction is to say, if you're convinced, as I think... It's not unreasonable to be convinced by the, the um, rejection of the diachronic self. If you're convinced by that, then you might think the Buddhist is r- philosophically right that you shouldn't fear death in 20 years or whatever. It's just it's not a rational thing to fear. But the way to combat that fear might be by not thinking about death yeah. um, and just doing other things and just living your life. And so, I mean, that's so it's the, the Buddhist philosophy might have the right conclusion, but some of the recommendations for practice might not be the best way to go for that particular thing. There are other things Buddhism will, will be good for. Um, just this particular thing that we looked at doesn't seem to be. So, I mean, also, the way this is being presented could be interpreted as the whole point of Buddhist practice is to conquer your fear of death. But it's really not, right? right that right. is one benefit of it. Um, but it is also supposed to increase, uh, increase your compassion for others. It's supposed to make you more aware of the present moment and to appreciate life more. I mean, one possibility is if that is successful, they have come to appreciate being alive to such an extent that it, it, it does seem worse because being alive is better for them than it is for, the, you know, for us. Um, who just go around like not know like be sleepwalking most most of the time. So it could have. Has there been other tests, uh, other studies that have tested whether they uh, behave more compassionately, feel more compassion, um, are that they just are, are more altruistic? Has that uh, have there? Do you know of studies like that? The other things that are supposed to come from Buddhism? Um, we try. Well, I don't know of other studies. We tried to test it, but our measures weren't very good. So we were uh, because it was hard to control for um, income, and so we asked questions about charity. But we couldn't. We should have designed the study better. But you know, Dan Bartels and I 
and Trevor Kavarin did, this is before we did the Buddhist studies, um, we used the, the Parfit manipulation where you get people to think the self changes a lot. Um, so you just, there are different ways to do it, but one way is you just tell them, oh, social science has a lot of research that shows that the self is constantly changing. And when you get people to think the self changes a lot and you, and you, um, you give them money that they can get in a year, they're more charitable with that money. Um, and so you do get the, the Buddhist prediction there. Um, and that was with Western student. So Isaac, Isaac Wigman from Texas State University with a second question. Yeah, yeah. This is fascinating. So yeah, I just have lots of questions. So I was thinking about uh, the difference between the atheists and the Buddhists. And uh, one thing that seems to make a big difference is, is maybe a dual, dualistic belief. Um, because I think a lot of uh, Buddhists have some, some form of dualism going on. Uh, and, and I guess in the background there, I'm thinking about, like, Nagel in conversation with some of the Stoics. I mean, Nagel has to go to, like, great lengths to convince people, like, convince a Stoic that death is a bad thing. Um, because the Stoics are just like, well, what you, what you don't know can't hurt you, sort of thing. And when you're dead, you don't know anything. Um, so, so in a way, like, that, that to me explains why, like, an, a materialist atheist would not... Like, they don't have any, any sense that they're going to continue past the, the existence of their physical body, but maybe lots of Buddhists do, and, th- and that, could, that could be some kind of uh, background thing that's, that's doing this. Well, I mean, the, the continuing past the material body, it seems like that's what they're worried about, that it's not going to happen because of biological death. I mean, it really is like the biological death is a much bigger deal to them than it should be given the doctrine. Um, uh, so the Western atheist point, I mean, maybe some of them are Epicureans. I, I don't know. We didn't look at that. It's actually kind of interesting to know why, but it also just might be like, everybody has a, there's kind of a normal fear of death. Even Christians, you know, I mean, lots of Christians that I knew, um, growing up, um, they thought they were going to go to heaven, but they really did not want to die. Yeah. Like, it seems like the rational thing would just be to die as soon as you can would, yeah, for eternal right. like bliss. Right, yeah. right, but but they had they still had <clears throat> they still had fear of death, and I think that there's there's a sort of um, there's a lower level belief that's going on here that's driving that may be common across the traditions. And it could be that your theoretical beliefs about what happens really don't have that much of an effect on your core just uh, emotions about it. Yep, yep. Um, Josh Weisberg, University of Houston. Um, Thanks for also coming. Um, uh, maybe the atheist is already someone who's not afraid of death, and then so that they're an atheist. They, they're not freaking out about this and searching for stuff to save them. <laughs> and so they just think, yeah, whatever, really death, whatever, it's a thing. And so, you know, I'm an atheist because I'm not worried about it. And so it might be the reverse sort of order. That's interesting. I never That suggestion's never been made. So um, Never. No, I, I've never heard that. <clears throat> It's the first original thought all conference long. <laughs> um, that may so you're right that there may be some kind of uh, philosophical selection that goes on based on your temperament, right? Um, but although Dave and I are both atheists, and uh, I I I am just Pascal's wagering myself and believing in it, everything right now. So again, whatever <laughs> it takes, get man. You. That doesn't whatever. win the wager for you. I'm afraid. <laughs> Yeah, you got to pick one. <laughs> you got to, I know. I, I just don't tell the other gods about, <laughs> have like a different room. 
And he, you, know, you better hope it's not a Jewish guy. Oh, I like, <laughs> that's that is actually my fear greater than, than my fear of death. Sorry. Were, were, did you? You grew up in Montana. Were you ever as anti-Semitic as Dave is? <laughs> <laughs> You know. <laughs> you know, it's like a fish in water that doesn't notice water. You know? <laughs> it's like, how would he know how anti-Semitic he was? Um, I am not anti-Semitic. I love the Jews. <laughs> For the record. Hates Jews, hates Tibet. <laughs> hates Tibet. <laughs> Just a good guy right here. <laughs> All, yeah. right. Well, All right. Well, thank, thank you, everybody. Thank you being here. Yeah. Thank you, Sean. Just a very bad wizard.